Welcome to Call to Action, a School Sisters of Notre Dame Central Pacific podcast. In season three, we will have guests join us to share how their work and their commitment to SSND's corporate stance for comprehensive immigration reform plays an important role in transforming the world through education and awareness. We look forward to discussing this topic on migration together as we stand in solidarity. Welcome back to another episode of Called to Action, Season 3. I'm happy to be back today. Uh, How have you been, Sister Anna Marie, since our last episode? It's good to be back again, Adam. And uh, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on our last conversation with Sister Kathy Doherty on DACA, or as we would oftentimes say, the dreamers. And again, just thinking about what is happening to that generation of young men and women who have not been able to have a status here in the United States, that they continue to be unprotected by the law. They aren't able to get a work visa. They are not even able to get driver's license, not able to continue their education. And it's just um, an astounding piece that we in the United States who value all of those things and yet we continue to leave them suspended without any means of changing their status. Yeah, I think the most helpful thing about that episode was actually having Yvonne on there, you know, uh, uh, to get that firsthand experience. We really haven't had that point of view before that episode. So uh, I, I hope the audience got a chance to listen to it because it was a really good one. Yeah, and, uh, and there are so many out there just like her. So today, I am grateful to have with us our next guest, Sister Lucy Nye, and uh, she has spent many years living actually on the border. So we often will talk about the southern border of the United States with Mexico and that experience. So welcome, Sister Lucy. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I was wondering, Sister Lucy, could you take a minute to tell us where you're located and what your current ministry is? Yes, I am located in Douglas, Arizona, but that is a sister city to Agua Prieta, Sonora, Mexico. So we have a border wall between these two cities, and I have been here since August of 2010. I'm ending 13 years of experience immigration and all its ups and downs and changes, meeting mostly deported migrants. Our work is to volunteer at a shelter and a humanitarian aid center in Agua Prieta. But I have also gone to some of the welcome centers in the United States when uh, migrants or immigrant families are released to continue their asylum appeal. Is that the type of work you've been doing the whole time as you've been an SSND? Oh, no. Um, I was raised in a large Catholic family of nine girls and seven boys. I was, I am the oldest. And my dad used to say when folks would say, well, what are you going to do when all those weddings start coming? And he'd say, oh, they're all going to be nuns. Well, I'm the only one. (laughs) I am 55 years, a school sister of Notre Dame this summer. And um, it's, it's been a great adventure. I wouldn't change it for anything. I've served in um, multiple capacities, and um, this one certainly has been an adventure. Well, living and ministering at the border, I am sure you have many stories 
of experiences of those who have, as you said, uh, been deported or trying to get across the border. So can you just share a little bit, uh, tell us a story about your everyday life there. When I first came here, I had never really understood the whole impact and seen the reality of desperation. I think that has touched me the most because it's that kind of feeling in the people I've met that has caused them to risk terrible dangers. Crossing the desert is not easy. There are rugged mountains. Arizona is almost all desert. There's only three major cities in 370 miles of the border. All the rest of it is rugged terrain. Their faith, their love of family, desire to gain employment that will allow them to feed their families, secure an education for their children. And because there is no real possible legal path except waiting for maybe 20 years, people make this desperate attempt to arrive on the U.S. side. And it has to be through desperation and through their faith in God. You, you really touched into something we've been speaking a lot about is the need to have immigration reform and paths forward. So in that desperation, since there is no path, then they choo- are choosing ways to come into this country at those points of desperation that are really dangerous. You mentioned a little bit about the, the danger of crossing through the desert. Can you share a little bit about what your experiences of those who have tried crossing the desert? The people I meet are people who have been deported, and therefore they didn't make it. Their story is often filled with very desperate means. I uh, just found an article where they were talking about the lengths we go to protect the border and enforce law is causing many of the migrants to really choose very dangerous uh, paths to try to get across the border. It was in the 1990s. Uh, Doris Meisner was a part of the immigration enforcement at that time, and they were experimenting with different things about the fact that there were so many people crossing the border. And they started to put up walls because it's quoted in their um, uh, effort to, or their decision about this, that certainly if we put up walls, people will, will not attempt to cross over. The, the phrase was, the walls will be a lethal deterrent. Well, we know since the 90s, they have not been a deterrent, but it certainly has been lethal. In the last 20 years, just in Arizona alone, more than 4,000 remains have been found and brought to the morgue in Tucson, where there is an attempt to, to match the DNA and find family members and let let families know of the fate of their loved one. I can't help but remember that a year ago, Griselda, who lived on the other side of the border, decided to cross, and for some reason, at this part of the 30-foot wall, the harness she was on to let her down on the other side got caught, and she hung upside down 
those kinds of deaths, deaths are just really terrible to take in. That great number, and yet there's there doesn't seem to be an outcry. And yet in Arizona, there have been immigration advocates since the 2000s who are trying to bring attention to the death in the desert. These are horrific stories, and Lucy, that you're sharing, and knowing that there are many, many stories like that of people crossing and losing their lives, and the horror of also the fact that loved ones don't even sometimes know what happened to them. And we feel it a privilege um, with uh, local people here and with visitors who come. For the last seven years, we have uh, followed the example of, of a gentleman who lives in Tucson and made a cross with the name of the person, put it into the place as near as possible because there is a map created by an organization called Humane Borders that puts a red dot across southern Arizona for all the remains that have been found. So we gather with this group and have a ceremony of remembrance, praying for the individual, honoring their life, uh, praying for their family. And it's really been a privilege, um, a wonderful connection. And we believe that somehow the family knows that their loved one was remembered. I'm remembering um, when I was living in Guatemala in one of the aldeas, and uh, one of the women got word that her brother, who had been heading up to the United States and crossing, disappeared. And I just sitting with her day after day in the beginning, just waiting for information, waiting for information, um, knowing that he had started that journey, and then one day receiving word that he was gone with no explanation of what happened, how he died. And you know, years later, we would be together and she would reflect on how much she missed her brother and the fact that she never got to mourn his loss, never, never knew what happened to him or his body. And to think that there are hundreds of people like that who never have closure on the loss of a loved one. We have a story of uh, planting a cross. We put each of these uh, events on a website called crossplanting.wordpress.com. And 10 years after this, this man was disappeared from um, his family, they called Sister Judy and, and um, said, Every once in a while, we do a search online to see if we can find anything out about our brother. And what do you know? Noe Baca was on this cross that we had planted, and his brother um, saw that he was remembered. So as the, the migrant um, cross, so these encounters at the border, so they're really kind of Two responses, either apprehension when they're taken into custody or expulsion, which means immediately expelled back to, well, let's say their home country, but we know that they're being expelled back to Mexico, even if they're not from Mexico. Migrants we see at our port of entry, if they are Guatemalan, Honduran, etc., and Mexican, of course, they're just put back at the humanitarian aid center right at the border. We welcome them with food. Um, it's a place to stay for a bit rest. Some months ago, because of so many Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, and Cubans who were usually crossing at the Yuma, Arizona port of entry, because of the large number, they started doing the same thing, deporting them back. 
people from all around the world are seeking asylum, are wanting to better their lives and come here. Sadly, you know, not all of them will be able to receive asylum because the rules are very strict. They are initially given a credible fear interview. Um, this is, this is now, uh, when they can seek asylum. But in order to get approved for asylum, you have to prove that you are a victim of persecution or torture. Categories are race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or being a member of a social group. You can't ask for asylum because you're poor. Yes, in many parts of the world where we have governments right. that are dysfunctional governments where there's political instability, another one of those reasons, you know, drivers of immigration. Because if you live in a small little city that is controlled by organized crime, the municipal police, the authorities there have their hands tied. There is no proof other than your story, other than having people uh, write accounts of what they know. Um, maybe just to say a little bit about enforcement, uh, which is now under the agency of uh, Department of Homeland Security. but. There's Border Patrol and there's ICE. Border Patrol is the police force of the borderlands all around the United States and, of course, heavily on the southern border. ICE is Immigration Customs Enforcement, and they are in charge of making sure immigration laws are kept. They uh, have the power to detain people and to remove them. This kind of connects with the court system a bit, which we have a little bit of experience here in uh, the Tucson area, where years ago there was something called Operation Streamline. Seventy people a day, every day, came into the court in the clothing they had while they were in the desert, and um, nine or ten at a time were sentenced. This, of course, stopped during the COVID time, but recently we have gone back to the court to see that it's still going on in a little bit of a different way. There are um, men and women brought into the court, now only maybe 20 to 30 a day, in their jump jump suits. They are brought before the judge. They have already served some time in detention and they are given more time if they have crossed the border um, numerous times. And depending on how many times they've crossed the border, they can get from 30 to 120 days. Do they have any rep yes. representation when they come to these court systems? Yes, they are given a lawyer who has more time, we think, to spend with the lawyer. But how are they going to prove the fact that they were found in the desert with and, and coming through not at a legal port of entry. There's no way to say that didn't happen. So they're stuck. Are there any options for them to get a leg to stand on? Because it, it's kind of like they're going into this hearing already, like you said, with something against them. Like, how, how does that play into their hearing? There is no explanation about poverty or desperation or why or whatever it is simply the fact that you were found um, and this civil violation 
is becoming now a federal felony, and um, they need to pay for it. Uh, what happens is they need to be in detention. People are talking about we should have alternative means of detention. Congress has allotted so many beds in detention detention units, which are mostly private prisons. They're all over the United States, but many here in Arizona. At least $150 to $200 a day per person for up to 40,000 beds. And this is being paid by the taxpayers. When you could, I mean, if somebody were a notorious killer, which are not the people who are coming to find a job, they could be put on a, a ankle monitor. It's a little complicated, but rather than $165 a day or whatever, five or six dollars a day, and you have to keep reporting in to um, immigration about where you are, you know, they, they keep track of you. So that would be an alternative by using the ankle monitor that would allow them to be with their families, could even allow them to work. They have to report. Immigration knows where they are at. Um, so it would be a relief on the cost of detaining uh, someone. Instead of building a you know, detention center, why haven't we built some kind of mass housing unit where people can live with their families? They could still have representation from U.S. government there to do whatever they need to do to uphold the laws that they're an offense to. But I, I mean, if it's coming out of tax dollars, why, why hasn't that option been brought up? But these uh, private prisons have a oh, lot yes. of lobbying in the Congress. And um, they're a business, so that's the situation. Most asylum-seeking families that I have seen at the Welcome Center in Tucson have one member of the family that has an ankle monitor on them. Until they appear in court, until their asylum case has been given a date, and sometimes that date is far into the future. So they do use them in the family situation of seeking asylum. Oh, it's, it's interesting. You use the word community, create communities. They actually come from communities and are going to communities where their families live. So there really would not even be a need to build something. They just need to be able to be united with their family. Then that's where their community is. And, and actually, that's where their faith community is also. Yeah, any, anything that doesn't make them feel like they're going to prison. That's what I would like to see. You know, unfortunately, many times the news that we hear and we see is is transmitted in such a way that it's it it's really done to evoke fear and play on racist anxiety, um, using inflammatory rhetoric that can actually be misleading and and harmful. You know, the importance of really finding news outlets that will really give a human face to the migrant. People uh, who are interested come to the border. Schools do um, educational trips. Parish groups often plan uh, a group that will come and find someone who will lead them on an experience, an immersion of the border reality. It's, it's a lot to take in. But seeing the faces, being in the shelters, Beginning to understand the plight and the danger that is involved adds so much more than any newspaper article about, you know, what's happening at the border can tell you. 
the real life experience helps people to put together the pieces that aren't explained, that aren't talked about. You know, yes, uh, we need to protect our border. That's something we have a right to do. But don't we as Christians need to be people of compassion? Yeah, when you say that, we, we had a conversation in an earlier episode with Sister Jean, and she shared with us about the document, Strangers No Longer. And that's really what we need to do, that if they are not strangers, they are our neighbor. And not only our neighbor, they are our brothers and sisters. And how we approach and treat them and embrace them would be so different if they were strangers no longer. Uh, people who often say to me who live in the North, aren't you afraid to live at the border? Well, you know, nothing really against Chicago, but I might be more afraid to live in Chicago. And I know all kinds of people here. I know all kinds of Mexicans and other country people. They're, they're not someone to be afraid of. But so often the stranger evokes fear and distrust in us rather than seeing an opportunity to meet a neighbor. And we do have faith. And so we hold, hold all those who suffer in prayer. Um, we have our prayer for immigration for our brothers and sisters that we have been sharing on each of our episodes. Sister Lucy, could you pray that prayer for us? Yes, I'd be happy to do so. God of love and compassion, may we always recognize your spirit in the refugee family seeking safety from violence, in the migrant worker bringing food to our tables, in the asylum seekers seeking justice for their families, in the unaccompanied child traveling in a dangerous world. Give us hearts that break open whenever our brothers and sisters turn to us. Give us hearts that no longer turn deaf to their voices in times of need. Give us eyes to recognize a moment for grace instead of a threat. Give us voices that fail to remain silent, but which decide instead to advocate prophetically. Give us hands that reach out in welcome, but also in work for a world of justice until all homelands are safe and secure. Bless us, O Lord. Amen. Thank you, Sister Lucy, for being on the show today. And I really like the perspective that you shared with the work that you do and the stories that you've been able to share with us about working at the border. Thank you, Lucy, for bringing humanity to this situation and helping us to see the, the face of the migrant and to know that they are a brother and sister. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us today and remind them that a new podcast is available every two weeks. And I hope that you join us for our next installment. Thank you for listening to Call to Action. I hope you join us for our next conversation airing every other Wednesday. You can listen to past and current episodes of Call to Action by visiting ssndcp.org forward slash call to action or by following us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for your support and remember to follow the School Sisters of Notre Dame Central Pacific Province on Facebook to stay up to date on Call to Action.